0: on local now, channel five twenty-five. The
1: person who hangs in there with Jesus may look like he or she is in trouble and an outcast, may to all the world seem to be a nobody and a nothing, but really he or she is in a living state of grace if they persevere to glory.
0: That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Mike's message today is entitled The Church of Philadelphia and the Call to Perseverance That's The Church of Philadelphia and the Call to Perseverance If you've been listening to these broadcasts you know that you can find them online at reachingyourheart.com That's reachingyourheart.com Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, please call us today at 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast. I'll have information on how you can attend the worship service in person if you would like. You can also attend anytime online at reachinghearts.org video. That's reachinghearts.org video. Let's get underway with the first portion to the Church of Philadelphia and the Call to Perseverance. That's the Church of Philadelphia and the Call to Perseverance. And here is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentanko.
1: We've been talking about seven epic attitudes. Now we're at the sixth one today. Seven epic attitudes are the epic concerns of Jesus Christ for his church from apostolic days to the last day. I mean, it's amazing how God has put the history of the Christian church and really Christ's intervention in time right here in these seven churches. Let's just quickly review them together. The first epic attitude represented by the church of Ephesus is the call to what? I talked about it last week. Do you remember? The call to love. Exactly. The church of Ephesus represents the church of the first and second centuries that lost its first love. Christ called the early church to renew its commitment to love. Here they were fighting off heretics. Here they were dealing with the heresy of proto of these Nicolaitans, and they had lost sight of the fact they must love the heretic and try to win the unbeliever. And so Christ says, you must come back to your experience of love. The second epic attitude represented by the church of Smyrna is the call to what? The call to faith. Very good. Now, the church of Smyrna represented the church of the late 3rd and early 4th centuries that was persecuted by the Roman Empire. In fact, it became the official policy of Rome to wipe out Christianity. For 10 days, 10 years speaking... Rome tried to officially defeat the Christian religion from 303, when the great persecutions began, to the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. The Christian church was put to the test. Finally, Constantine granted religious freedom, and through the power of God, the Christian church was saved from that terrible 10 year ordeal. We know, of course, the church of Smyrna is a call to faith. The third epic attitude represented by the church of Pergamum is the call to obedience. Now think about it. The Church of Pergamon represents the church era of the Synod Movement, the institutionalization of the Orthodox Church, when false church fathers compromised the teachings of the Holy Bible. The church that gave us the Bible forsook the teachings of the Bible. And it represented the church of the late 4th to early 6th centuries that replaced Bible authority with church authority. Jesus never did that. In fact, he required that his church test all things by the word of God. And so we see the church becoming church-centered instead of Christ-centered. The fourth epic attitude represented by the church of Thyatira is the call to, to purity. Very good. The church of Thyatira represents the church of the Middle Ages when a false church system acted as Jezebel leading Christians into idolatry and idol worship. Paganism and immorality were freely offered in place of biblical truth and gospel teaching. The church of the Middle Ages, while there were great lights of faith and virtue, it still tolerated the harlot Jezebel who led many Christians astray. And Jesus says very clearly in Revelation 2.21 that he gave her time to repent There was a time prophecy where God was interacting with His beloved church of the Middle Ages, trying to bring them out of these problems that were there. And that time was 1,260 years long. The book of Daniel calls it a time, times, and dividing of times. From the spring of 538 to the spring of 1798, God worked with the medieval church. He wanted the children of the harlot Jezebel and Jezebel to be saved, but she would not repent. The text is very clear. She would not repent. And so Jesus warned the church that he would strike her children dead if they did not repent of Jezebel's works. And so the mother church had children who went astray too. The fifth epic attitude represented by the church of Sardis is the call to vigilance. It concerns the post-Reformation church after the 16th century that started out right with the Bible, but it failed to advance in real Bible reform. It failed to take the Bible and let it lead them into the future with all of God's truth. Now think about it. The church that started out with righteousness by faith settled on a focus of predestination. It settled on a focus which led to dead faith, to a spoiled experience, to spiritual garments that were soiled because it failed to focus on a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Instead, it found refuge in the teaching of once saved, always saved. For the post-Reformation church, God's election took the place of Christ's call for the believer to have faith in Jesus and to perfect its works before God. And so the counsel is given, I have not found your works mature or perfected in my sight. Christ warned the church of Sardis that if it did not awaken from its sleep, it would be blind to prophetic truth, and in time he would come like a thief for the children of the Reformed tradition." Christ warned the sleeping church of Sardis that boasted in the false teaching of once saved, always saved, that Christ himself would in fact blot their names out of the book of life in the judgment in heaven if they would not repent. And when he confesses the names of true believers before the Father and the holy angels, the church that came out of the Reformed tradition doesn't even believe in a pre advent judgment because it believes the predestined will of God makes it unnecessary. And so they are unprepared for end-time events. For Jesus, it's not enough to believe once. You must keep on believing all the way down to the end of time. That is the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is the kind of faith that believed in the Father when he was baptized. It believed in the wilderness when he was tempted. It believed for three and a half ministries. And in the darkness of the cross, it kept on believing. He did not relinquish his faith in God. And real faith is not based on God's election. Real faith is based on God's power in your life right now to keep you believing in difficult days. The sleeping church of Sardis has the name of being alive, but it is really dead. It's not enough to call yourselves evangelical. And I believe, in the truest sense, that we can call ourselves evangelical if we are obedient to the Bible and we are sharing Christ with others. It's not enough, though, to call yourself evangelical. You must really be evangelical and obedient to God's word to be alive. And that brings us to the Church of Philadelphia. The sixth epic attitude is represented by the Church of Philadelphia, and it is the call to perseverance. The Greek word can be translated patience, but also perseverance. I did a Google search for the definition of perseverance. How many of you ever do Google searches for everything? Here's what I found. Two definitions. Steadfastness and doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. That was a pretty good definition. But I like the second one better. Continuance in a state of grace leading finally to a state of glory. You like that? That's perseverance, continuance in a state of grace, leading finally to a state of glory. The person who hangs in there with Jesus may look like he or she is in trouble and an outcast, may to all the world seem to be a nobody and a nothing, but really he or she is in a living state of grace if they persevere to glory. And if you hang in there in this state of grace, you will one day taste the fruit of glory. You know, the person who gives up and quits never gets there. The person who says, oh, I'm having such a hard time in my Christian walk, I just don't want to go any further, and they throw in the towel because someone says something to them, or they have an experience that compromises their confidence, and they just give up. That person will never seize the prize. They will never taste the fruit of glory. You see, for your faith to really matter, it must persevere all the way to the end. Only two churches received no rebuke at all in the letters of the seven churches. The church of Smyrna, we've already seen that, was persecuted by Rome from 303 A.D. to 313 A.D., and it didn't need any reproof at all. Why? Because it was hanging on with faith and following in that faith all the way to death. And Christ said, you keep the faith, you be faithful in the death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, in this sense, the church of Philadelphia is like the church of Smyrna. It comes later in history. It comes after the 1260 years of the Middle Ages. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, Hang on to your crown. I am coming quickly. So there's a link between Smyrna and Philadelphia. Both groups were persecuted by the synagogue of Satan that claimed to be a body of true believers but was really a congregation of devils. Both groups struggled with Christians who claimed to be Christians when they were really fighting against the truth, making war against repentance, obstructing reform, trying to break up the body of Christ, and undermining Christian values based on biblical virtues that lead people to Jesus. I mean, when you are about that in the church, when that is your focus and intention, you can rest assured that you are a member of the synagogue of Satan. In Revelation 3-7, I'd like to begin Jesus' letter here by reading it. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shall shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now here Jesus emphasizes that part of the vision of himself in chapter 1 that is relevant for the church, that symbolizes the great Advent awakening at the end of the great awakening around the year 1840 and after the church that fell to sleep in the old world, the church of the post-Reformation. Christ said, you must awake. We find the answer to the problem of the church of Sardis arising in the church of Philadelphia, which symbolizes the second great awakening, which led to the great Advent awakening in the 1840s. Scholars tell us that the second great awakening was perhaps the greatest religious revival in the history of the world since apostolic times. It was the time when one movement after another arose, hoping to restore the apostolic faith to the Christian church. It's been called the era of restorationism. The word Philadelphia in the Greek literally means brotherly love. And you couldn't find more brotherly love than that second great awakening. Men were living for others, women were praying for others, and souls were turning to Christ. The second great awakening is exactly what the post-Reformation church needed. A movement that led to love to faith, and to conversion of souls. The Second Great Awakening dawned around the year 1790, and it reached its zenith in the Millerite movement of the 1830s and 40s, which we have called, which history calls, the Great Advent Awakening. Now, unlike the church that dwelt on predestination, the churches of North America focused on the Armenian teaching of free will and the importance of accepting Jesus as your personal Savior from sin. And they believed that every person could be saved, so they held tent meetings, and they had altar calls so men and women and children could come right up to the altar and be saved and surrender to Jesus Christ. It was unlike the dead orthodoxy, which had surrendered the flame and faith of evangelism because it had bought into this notion of predestination that makes election so strong that men and women cannot choose Jesus Christ. They advanced reform movements like the abolition of slavery, Health reform and outreach to the poor and prison reform. And finally, they came to believe that Jesus was coming to inaugurate the kingdom of God. The ultimate reform for them in time of trouble meant that Jesus would come and bring his kingdom here. In Revelation 3-7, Jesus is called the Holy One, the true one, the one who opens and no one can shut. The Church of the Americas, the revival that was occurring in the 1800s was alive and entrepreneurial for God. I mean, you didn't have the clergy just deciding to do everything. You had men and women who'd strike out on business enterprises which were not for themselves but for the purpose of God. And they established institutions of faith. They were in the business of holding camp meetings and conversion events, printing literature so that Jesus could come. It was satisfied with nothing less than the transformation of a dark world by evangelizing the people of the planet before the return of Christ. The church of the Second Great Awakening was in hot pursuit of holiness. They didn't want to just get along and live so-so lives. They wanted to be holy for a holy Lord, to honor the Holy One who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I've thought about it in my own life. I'm not sure I want to come to a church that just wants to play religion. What about you? I mean, just to come to church, to be a social Christian, to kind of act like things are all right, and not to grow in Christ... What good is a church like that? And not to affect others for the kingdom. I mean, in the middle of the Second Great Awakening, church was about change in Jesus Christ. It was about a God who can reach you through the preaching of the Word of God. It was about Holy Spirit revival that was not fanatical, but was represented by obedience and repentance. It was the kind of church that is really church. And even though many of them didn't meet in churches, they met in camp meetings all over the country in tents and the like, people were turning to Jesus. New names of churches rose to prominence in the new world of America. The Baptist church baptized people by immersion to Jesus Christ. They didn't just sprinkle, they baptized those people. They did exactly what the early church did. They put them under the water, dead in Christ, and they pulled them out of the water, alive, anew in Christ. There were also the Seventh-day Baptists in the Church of North America who started keeping the Fourth Commandment as the Bible instructs. The Methodist Church pursued Christian methods to change lives for Jesus Christ. I mean, spiritual discipline, small group Bible studies changing lives for Jesus.
0: Let's continue now with Pastor Michael oxen Tenko in today's Reaching Your Heart.
1: And there are others like the Christian Connectionist Movement whose adherents valued the Bible and studied it diligently to follow it in every way. In this context, Adventism also arose as a movement. Adventism was a group of people from all kinds of churches that coalesced from different churches like the Baptist, the Seventh-day Baptist, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Christian Connectionist Movement and others into a common conviction that was held because of the study of the book of Daniel. A common conviction that Jesus was coming in the middle of the 19th century. That's what Adventism is. Now how in the world did they come up with that kind of a conviction? I'm going to talk about Captain William Miller. Is that okay? Great hero of the War of 1812, who fought at the Battle of Plattsburgh, but in God's eyes, a greater hero, because he fought for the truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, most Christians in America and the world before the Civil War believed that Jesus would not return until the end of the millennium. They were post-millennial. In other words, Christ would come at the end of a thousand years. They were not pre-millennial, which means Jesus comes before the thousand years. Now, many Christians today, and I am one of them, are pre-millennial we believe in Christ's soon coming. Now, they deeply held, and one of the reasons for this, they deeply held to the political doctrine of manifest destiny. You ever hear of that? Manifest destiny. That was part of the American spirit in the 1830s and 40s. Manifest destiny had no room for the second coming of Jesus Christ as a shared theory. Go west with your wagon, file a claim, get a ranch, expand the American dream, subdue the wild continent. Take it from the Indians. Go for the gold on Indian land, of course, for the good of the nation. Be patriotic about it. Get rich and get gold. It, it was really a Jacksonian doctrine of dominance, of Western dominance, the taking over of the Indian lands. And well, Jesus, when you get the gold, he will just have to wait. And besides, Jesus isn't coming for a thousand years to the end of the millennium. Good deal for you. Go for the gold and forget God, it was implied. In this arrogant atmosphere, one American preacher arose in the 1830s that God raised up to change the nation, that God raised up to prepare the nation before the Civil War to have a sense of its need of God, that God raised up to change the world so it would understand that Jesus is coming on this side of the millennium, not that side of the millennium. Before William Miller began to preach, people weren't looking for the coming of Jesus Christ at all, hardly. Most Christians weren't looking for him because they were satisfied with their life right here. America had become a good place to live without some end of the world coming to spoil it all. William Miller was a Baptist preacher who didn't start out as a believer in Jesus Christ. In his teens, he was convinced by bad mentors to become a deist. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and there were some of our founding fathers who were deists. Now, it's not fair to say they were all deists. I mean, that's an overgeneralization that we find today that's being used to argue that we have no Judeo-Christian roots to our culture. There were a few deists, but there were also great people of faith who were the founding fathers of this country. But Thomas Jefferson was a deist, and he cut the New Testament to pieces to produce a Bible like the one that he would like to have. Not the one that was given by God, but the one that would satisfy his need for reason. Deists believe that God wound up the world like a clock, and then he left it all alone to work on its own, based on natural law. And so there was a distant God in the deist way of thinking. And the God of deism was a cold and aloof God who frankly didn't care much about your everyday struggles for faith. He was more concerned with letting the universe run itself, and he went off to do his own thing. Now William Miller was a captain in the War of 1812 and he fought at the great Battle of Plattsburgh in upstate New York. And as he fought in that battle, he saw his forces represented by the United States just frankly outnumbered and outgunned. And miraculously, the battle turned and it saved the nation Far outnumbered in that battle, he saw a divine hand save his life on the field of battle. He saw the forces of the United States prevail, and he was forced to reassess his skeptical beliefs with Bible investigation. Perhaps these deists were wrong because something happened there that was of a supernatural quality. When Miller returned home from war, he began to study the Bible as if his life depended on it. Like the reformers of the 16th century... He came to understand that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world from sin. He rediscovered the apostolic gospel that had been rediscovered in the 16th century, and as he studied his bible, he began to feel the glow of righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone, of the inadequacies of works to appeal to a God in the judgment day, of the need of a savior who died on the cross to save him. Sola fide he taught, by faith alone. His fear of death was replaced by a living confidence in Jesus Christ. Faith lays hold of him, he found, and William Miller took hold of Jesus. So he joined the Baptist church as a simple layman following his Lord in faith. As William Miller studied his Bible, he discovered that the Bible contains a system of truth that can be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. You know, when preachers go to seminary, when preachers get their PhDs very often, They sometimes communicate to people that they can't understand the Bible. That it takes an intellectual to understand it. It takes someone who has got the right degree to get it. William Miller was a layperson. He wasn't trained in any seminary. He took his Bible out. He opened it up. He applied common sense to it. He prayed for God's guidance. He took a crudence concordance. He compared Scripture with Scripture. And the Bible themes began to come alive in this man's heart. So he studied the whole Bible, including the prophecies of the book of Daniel. As he studied long into the night, William Miller discovered the book of Daniel contained a coherent history of the world from the time of Babylon to the end of time. The four metals of Daniel 2 and the four beasts of Daniel 7, he found... Like others in the Reformation and and even others before that in the early church of the Orthodox tradition, like Hippolytus, he found that they represented the four world empires of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the ten toes in Daniel 2 and the ten horns in Daniel 7, he, like others before, discovered that they represented the ten kingdoms of the monarchies of the Middle Ages after the Roman Empire transitioned to what history calls the Holy Roman Empire. And like the Reformers, Miller recognized who the little horn of Daniel 7 was, right there in the Middle Ages, taking the place of Christ, leading the church away from Christ. And then he went further than the Reformers. He began to focus on the prophecies of Daniel 8. The Reformers had studied diligently Daniel 7, but he got into Daniel 8, and he found there the longest time prophecy in the Bible, the 2,300 days of Daniel eight fourteen. Now, days means years in the Bible in prophetic language, 2,300 years, the longest time prophecy in the Bible. The 2,300 day for your prophecy of Daniel 8.14 became the focus of the Christian world in the 1840s. I mean, the Christian church had moved through the medieval captivity when the French Revolution occurred. Now everyone was studying the book of Daniel. And finally it coalesces at the end of the second awakening into a study of one verse in the Bible, Daniel 8.14. And when William Miller made Daniel 8.14 that prominent verse in his study, he in fact made it the prominent verse of study in the Second Great Awakening. I'd like to read it to you from the King James Version as he read it and studied it. Daniel 8.14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Is that how it reads in your Bible, yes or no? Okay, very good. That's how it read in his. The beginning of this time prophecy starts with the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, how do we know that? Daniel 9.25 tells us that. Miller went there. He discovered the link between Daniel 9 and Daniel 8, that this shorter time prophecy is cut off or part of the longer time prophecy. And right there in Daniel 9.25, it says from the decree to restore and build
0: Jerusalem... Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for the first portion of the Church of Philadelphia, The Call to Perseverance. We will continue this broadcast the next time we get together. And thank you so much for listening today. Worship services are Saturdays at 11 o'clock. And if you would like to attend in person at the church, we would love for you to do that. That address is 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. Or if you're more comfortable, you're certainly welcome to watch online at reachinghearts.org reachinghearts.org slash video the live broadcast will be streaming and available for you on that website reachinghearts.org slash video thanks for listening and we do pray that God is reaching your heart